Morning, Tina. Good morning, Carl. Uh, excited to talk to you this morning. Yes, I'm, I'm pleased it's evening where I am, but it's morning where you are, right? It's just on 10 a.m. on a very, very hot Sunday morning here in Darwin, Northern Territory. Ah. Uh, temperature is 36 degrees. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's very hot and, uh, yeah, and very humid. So um, I'm not wearing many clothes. <laughs> <laughs> neither, neither am I, actually, because it's almost oh, really? time. Oh, yes, of course. For you, it's the evening. Last, it's last night. Yes, actually. that's right. That's yes. right. So I want well, to thank you for you. staying up. <laughs> yes. I want to welcome you to the podcast, A Life in Biography. I have done some podcasts on biographical novels, which I'm keenly interested in, and I've reviewed mm -hmm. some biographical novels as well. Um, some of those reviews can be found in a book of mine, uh, which is titled Reading Biography. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm very interested as a just a, someone interested in biographical novels, but also in um, Sylvia Plath and the ramifications of Sylvia Plath's life. I'm very interested in your novel, Capriccio, which I read with, with great pleasure and interest. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes. I wonder, um, yes. I was just going to say, I actually listened to your earlier um, podcast about biographical novels huh? and I was thinking oh dear <laughs> he doesn't he does not like biographical novels and what am I how am I going to defend myself because, no you don't uh... you're, you're not you're not on this <laughs> podcast to be attacked I actually do like some biographical novels and I like yours oh that's wonderful to hear thank you so much because but... I struggled I struggled a lot with a lot of objections and you know yes. and my my own uh, my own misgivings about do I have the right to do this and so on so uh, it's wonderful to hear that from such an esteemed biographer as yourself that well you, well you thank you it. before we get into the novel itself and what drew you to that particular subject matter as well as the as well as writing a biographical novel uh, tell us a little bit about yourself well, um, I'm an Australian writer, but I actually identify more, uh, I say my background is Eastern European. Um, my four grandparents were uh, immigrated from um, from the pogroms, really, in, in Eastern Europe, mostly in Russia, and fled to different countries, one of which was Australia, uh, and others went to the UK, uh, South Africa and some to the United States. So I ended up being born in Australia kind of by accident. Um, so I'm proud to be Australian, but my heritage is Eastern European Jewish. And oh. you will see that you will see that theme a lot in both of my books because I have a second novel out now too. And so what else would you like to know? Basically, well, um, I... <laughs> what, what's the title of that second novel? Yeah, the second novel is, is called A Dangerous Daughter, and it is uh, almost like autofiction. Um, it's based on my own life, but it is fictionalised mainly because I wanted to protect members of my family that could have been hurt uh, had I used the real, you know, names and real stories. And I did invent characters and I conflated others, as I did in Capriccio, 
It's a story of a young Jewish girl who grows up in rural Australia a long, long time ago. If I tell you how long, you'll know how old I am. <laughs> I'm quite sensitive about <clears throat> being quite old. But anyway, it was in the days where there was not much sophistication, especially in Western Australia, where this girl was more or less exiled to because she had a, a disease that they couldn't diagnose, which turned out much later to be anorexia nervosa, but not until she was at death's door. And um, so it's a story of her struggle and it, it involves a lot of psychoanalysis, which is the the way the girl eventually recovered. Nothing else would work, such as electroshock treatment and force feeding and so on. Um, so it's a testament to my actual analyst, psychoanalyst, and as a result, I've been invited to speak at a international conference, or Australasian conference, actually, it encompasses New Zealand and Australia, uh, Confederation of Australasian Psychoanalytical Psychotherapists. What a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I've been invited as a guest speaker to speak about that book, A Dangerous Daughter, because it's very rare that um, there are novels written from an authentic point of view by an Annalise and which is, you know, the, the name that you call yeah. a person who's been analysed. That's right, yes, yeah. So you've, you've got this deep interest in psychology. Um, yeah. What drew you to the biographical novel and specifically with your Eastern European background and living in Australia, why are you writing about Ted Hughes and Asia Wevel and Sylvia Plath? Well, why not? <laughs> because <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a lover of literature. I studied literature throughout university. I did a master's in English and linguistics. And um, I, you know, I, I, I know a lot of uh, British poets. And Ted Hughes was just one of them. But until I read the story of Asia in a newspaper, The Guardian, and it was an article that was titled Haunted by the Ghosts of Love. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It was published in the London Guardian. Yes, I think it, I have. It, it had a picture of this very beautiful woman, raven-haired woman, but with a very, very sad face. And I was immediately interested. And that sowed the seed, really, for Capriccio. But that was about... 20 years ago, nothing happened for about 10 years, but I kept thinking and thinking about it because I was still working then and too busy and raising three children on my own. Um, so, you know, I, I had to put all my writing aspirations on the back burner for many years. And uh, then I thought, nobody has written about this woman. I want to find out more. When I did research, uh, all the biographies I could get my hands on of Sylvia and Ted, this woman was represented by a paragraph or maybe a page, you know. In, in all of these biographies, she was just a footnote, a footnote in history. And that made me feel this woman needs redemption. Uh, I want to know more. And I was about to start writing when the lover of unreason, which is uh, Negev and Koren's wonderful biography yes. of, um, yeah. of Asia was published and I was 
very, very impressed, but also I was in despair because I thought, well, now it's been done. I can't do it. And that is when I decided, but I can do it. I can make it a novel. Mm-hmm. This this is not a novel. Um, it's it's a straight biography. And so I devoured that book and I've communicated uh, all throughout with um, Eilat, Eilat and Yehuda, and particularly Eilat has been extremely supportive. And one of the things she said to me after she read the book was that, was that she did love the book, but she also said, we wish we had had the freedom of fiction. Mm. And that, that just stayed in my mind. And I thought, yes, it's the freedom to get into the minds of these people without without erring from the truth. Uh, that is what I tried to do in Capriccio, to, to keep keep to the facts. And I, I, I really feel that I did, but embellish and go deeper, you know, so that I have dialogue that's invented. I don't know what they said to each other, but I, my imagination did the work. Um, yes thoughts and uh, dreams and everything that you can put in a fictional work that really don't belong in a biography. I think for those who are, who are listening, who, who know Platt's story and maybe have read some of the Platt biographies, and as you say, Asia Wevel certainly isn't uh, fully portrayed in any biography. I try to do my best in my books on Platt with her, but uh, she enters mm-hmm. the, in, in a sense, in the story so late. But what you often get yes. is a visceral uh, reaction from people who look yes. upon her as a kind of femme fatale. Exactly. And exactly. And that is how I saw her portrayed. And again, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm a feminist like, you know, most women my age. I was incensed <laughs> by the way this woman was portrayed. And I saw it very differently. I saw her as a victim, not as a seducer. I saw her as a fellow victim of, you know, the, the wiles of, 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 of the very seductive man. Um, I'm not, I, and I tried to write this novel both to redeem Asia and also to not to blame. I didn't want to cast blame. I don't see any point in casting blame. I just wanted to describe what happened, how it happened in the most, uh, if you like, the, the most lyrical way uh, that, that, that people will relate to. People relate to hearing conversations, but not to be voyeuristic. Uh, I think that there's a fine line between that sense of what right have I got to go into this person's mind, even though, you know, they're not alive, none of them are alive. Um, and, but I can, I can respect, still respect them and give them voice. And I, but mostly I wanted to give voice to, to Asia herself, who's been silenced. And in, in a way, if you've seen the cover of my book, uh, you, you'll see that it, it is a, her face or a face, I wasn't allowed to use Asiya's face, uh, but it, it is a face that's cut off at the mouth. And I wanted to, that is to, it's, it's a metaphor really that this woman has been silenced yeah. for so many decades. One of the it's time she had a voice. Yeah, That's right. One of the things that uh, I like about your novel 
is yes, you're not casting blame. You're you're trying to dramatize, and through that drama, we're we're helping to understand what kind of a person she was. Exactly. And if not a femme fatale, one of the things about her is, as you say, she was extraordinarily beautiful and attractive. And men were, were all kinds of men were attracted to her. Um, yes. And she responded to that attraction. In other words, she did yes. love to flirt, for example. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's very, very true, different, yeah. though, from being a femme fatale, where, where there's where the, there's the suggestion of evil, of seduction. Uh, yes. yes, she was so vilified and, and hated and blamed for Sylvia Plath's death by many writers and, and by the public at the time. Um, and, and I'm very sensitive to injustice and particularly uh, blame that's not deserved. In a way, A Dangerous Daughter is about, it has the same theme exactly as Capriccio uh, because, you know, the, the, uh, the girl who is ill is blamed for her illness and blamed for, you know, causing uh, trauma to her family by her illness. So Asia, in the same way, uh, was blamed because she was so beautiful, because yes. she was so attractive. She wasn't just a pretty face either. She was a brilliant woman, a very, very gifted artist, a, an a, amazing translator. And I've included, with, uh, with permission from her sister, Celia Chaikin, I was very careful to seek permission for everything I quoted. So I wrote to Celia, who is Asia's sister. I don't know if you've heard of her. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I had to write to her through her son because Celia herself is, is, is very elderly. and uh, But she did, through her son, give me permission to quote at the end of my book, Winter's End, which is one of Asia's poems. It's a beautiful and, poem. Yes. And, uh, and yet none of that is acknowledged in any of these biographies of, of uh, Sylvia or Ted. And that, that is really what my motivation has been all the time. You, you, um, I, you know, yes. You use the word redemption. And I think that's an impulse which a biographical novelist could have. It's certainly a, uh, an impulse a biographer can have. Uh, yes. You yes. feel your subject has been misunderstood or even exactly. maligned. Uh, yep. And and you're going to set the record straight, or at least yes. give people a different angle, a different way to view uh, your yes. subject. Exactly. That is exactly that sums it up very well, Carl. And you know, I hope I've succeeded in doing that in some way in in my uh, novel, uh, Capriccio. This is something I, I I just this is just pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, I gave a talk called Recollecting the Past last year at the Northern Territory Writers' Festival. And um, I've said, Capriccio, a novel, is my attempt to redress an, an injustice from the past. Asia Gutmann Webel, my main character, has until now been largely written out of history. She was the other woman in the tempestuous relationship between Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. In the many biographies of Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, 
a brief chapter or sometimes only a paragraph is devoted to the third in their tempestuous relationship, evidence in itself of the contempt in which Asia Gutmann Webel was held by the literati back in the 50s and 60s. So yeah, that sums up pretty well my intentions. I think it in, does. In uh, one of the things that I like about your novel is the kind of dynamic that develops between Ted Hughes and Asia uh, after Sylvia Plath's death. And I guess yes. we should say you don't use their actual names in the novel, though no. who, you're, who you're writing about is inescapable. But in a way, yes. not using the names also, I think, grants you a kind of freedom. Um, yes. Because you are creating characters. And some bi biographical novelists are very insistent on that, whether they're writing about Abraham Lincoln or John Brown or any other figure in history, they still want you to regard the work as fiction, that they're making a character, even if it's a historical figure, yeah. they're making a character out of that figure. Now, what interests uh -huh. me in this dynamic between Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, and it's something by reading your novel, um, uh, say someone who's read a lot about Plath, a lot of the Plath biographies, uh -huh. might not get from them. And what you get in your novel that I think helps explain something is in this dynamic, she wanted a family. Yeah, very she, much. She wanted yes. Ted Hughes to recognize her. And yeah, she had a daughter by him who yeah. in your novel, and there's some evidence outside of your novel to suggest he could never quite commit to her or to that child. Yes. And she would, she would, you know, she wanted to be included in things. His, her, his parents shut her out. They didn't want anything to do with her. Um, yes. He wanted her, her daughter, their daughter, to be included in activities with, ch with children. And sometimes she was. But he could never quite outright acknowledge. And by not acknowledging that daughter, many people ask, and you, you can address this issue, but a lot of people will say, as they do say with Sylvia Plath, how can you commit suicide when you have children? And then in Asia's mm. case, how can you commit suicide and take your daughter with you in that suicide? Mm. Mm. And I think mm. your novel goes quite a ways to explaining uh, what happened to Asia in those last uh, months of her life. Yes, the terrible downward spiral that she experienced because of her rejection by Ted, basically. And um, one thing that happened to me too when I was giving a talk about the book club, and um, one woman said to me that a friend of hers, there was a terrible tragedy in Darwin uh, several years ago. A young woman killed herself and her two children. And this woman had been a friend, a woman in the book club who'd been a friend of this woman said, I have never ever understood or been able to forgive what happened to this woman I'm talking about until I read your book about how Esther, i.e. Asia, felt that she took her daughter with her to protect her from being rejected as she had been by her father, because Ted had never ever said, I will look up daughter or shown any signs of, uh, as you say, of acknowledging paternity. 
he did later on, he did later on in letters to people, he said, I, in one letter I quote, I remember the quote by heart, I had a third, a little marvel, but she died with her mother. He said that in a letter, I've, I've studied all his letters too. It's a, uh, yeah, it's Ted Hughes speaking in, with a lot of regret in retrospect. A lot of regret. And he didn't write, he couldn't write for at least 12 months. He was in the middle of Crow after Shura and Alcia died. He had he was completely unable to finish. In fact, he says Crow is not a finished work because of that. It's dedicated, of course, if you if you know the the book of poems called Crow by Ted Hughes. In the front, the dedication says for Alcia and Shura. So that shows he did have feelings for them and regrets and remorse and well and that makes yeah. it worse doesn't it because he yeah. you know he was coming up to the brink so to speak he was yeah. saying he was going to commit to us yeah they were looking for houses they could he could never quite settle on any house she, yeah. she was ready to settle down he wasn't yeah. um yeah. and that 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 with she interpreted it as simply a withdrawal from her well, it was. Yeah. I think not that she interpreted it. It really was a yeah. rejection of her, There's... especially as as, as he he uh, he was already involved with, with two other women at the time yeah. of Asia's death. I think one of the other important things about Asia, and in a way, it was true of, of Sylvia Plath in the last. A year, almost two years of her life, both those women were displaced persons. Absolutely, yes, yes. I, I, I stress a lot that Asia herself is an exile. I mean, you know, she escaped Nazi Germany with her family. She was um, then transported via Italy to, to Palestine, which was then Palestine, now Israel. She wasn't happy there. Then to get out of that, she was more or less arranged. That marriage was arranged by her mother. Uh, married just to get out of of uh, Palestine, and uh, ended up in Canada. And then from Canada, she was a, a very much a displaced person, almost stateless. And that was why she endeavoured to to become English to the point where Ted said to her in one chapter, "Why are you trying so hard?" You know, to to be English, just just be yourself. It's much more interesting, much more interesting <laughs> to to be your exotic self. I mean, he was quite fascinated by the fact that she was half Jewish, that she, uh, you know, was escaped the Nazis, that she she spoke Hebrew fluently, and Italian and uh, German, of course. So she was a brilliant woman, but she's she's just seen, as you say, as a femme fatale, and that is still the case. I mean, my book hasn't reached many people. I would love more people to be aware of, of you know, the message it, it includes. But um, anyway, maybe after this, more people will read it. I hope um, so. Yeah, that's certainly yeah. what I want. Yes, I hope so too. By the way, the title Capriccio, of course, is taken from that set of 20 poems written by Ted Hughes that was buried and still is buried 
it, 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 he's selected poems for, for years and now he's buried in his huge tome of collected poems. Right. So these 20 poems all deal with his relationship with Asia and they are vicious. They are terrible. I, I mean, <laughs> I put, I don't know which edition you, you see. I updated Capriccio a couple of years after the first, it was first published. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but I have included in the second edition a bibliography, a list of the Capriccio poems and an essay. Did you get all that in your, in the edition you I were did. able to yeah. get? Yeah, I got the second oh. edition because you, oh, you said be good. sure to look at the second edition, which I did. That's right. And we, I've actually now unpublished the first edition so that the only edition is this second edition with the nonfiction material in it, which is a bit unusual in a novel, I know. But because this novel is so much grounded in the poetry, in, in the biographies I've sourced that have been my sources that are all acknowledged in the bibliography and in the acknowledgements, you know, um, I just felt that I had to do this. The other reason I had to do it was basically because of the Hughes estate. And I did want to talk to you about that. Please do, yeah. Time. Yes, please go ahead. Yes, one of the reasons that besides my discouragement uh, when Lover of Unreason was published, so I stopped writing, the other thing was that I would, my original manuscript included a couple of, like a couplet from each of the uh, Capriccio poems that introduced each chapter. And each chapter was named, had a title from one of the Capriccio poems. And to me, that was everything. <clears throat> However, I, I took the trouble of writing to Faber and Faber, the publishers of both Hughes and Platt, and asking permission to, to quote these couplets. And they refused point blank, not only did they refuse point blank, they said you know, not even one syllable could I quote, but I, we, they insisted that I change all the names because uh, originally I had kept the names, but I'm pleased to hear that you, you didn't find that uh, a problem uh, that, that, you know, La uh, Larry is Ted and Grace is Sylvia and Esther, which happens to be Asia's second name, <laughs> is, is Asia. Um, uh, when I spoke to uh, Ailat about this, she was a bit shocked and she said, well, I don't see why you should have to do that. But if you do, you could just call her Esther, which was her name as well. Um, uh, so, so now where, what am I getting at? Yes. About the, um, the reasons that it's called Capriccio. So titles are not copyright. So, you know, I, I did keep the titles, as you'll see, in the contents of the, the book, but not, oh, no, I didn't actually, no. Oh, when I look at the second edition, I get so upset <laughs> by all the things I had to take out because yeah. of them. And it's, then I can, you know, I can say um, that you have to make those changes. Yes. I have to say that you probably, uh, I don't know about what it's like in Australia. I know what it's like in England, and I'm familiar with copyright law in the U.S. I yes. think quoting very briefly a line or two from poems 
I consider to be fair use or what the English call fair dealing. But when yes. you do that and there's an estate involved, of course, you're taking a risk. Yes. Well, I was very interested to listen to your most recent podcast where you interview a publisher, a woman who's involved in publishing, and you talk about how the Hughes estate, maybe it, it, it's bluffing people because yes. it has never... That's right. Never actually taken anyone to court. And I did consult an intellectual property lawyer uh, uh, before I, I sent this book off. I showed her the manuscript. She said, there is nothing in here that could be construed as defamatory towards Ted Hughes, because, you know, that's what I was worried about. Right. And, and also... I don't think you should ever correspond with the Hughes estate again. She was quite angry on my behalf, but I said, I can't take the risk. I, I, I'm not terribly well off. Yes. I, I, you know, I, I could lose everything. But now this is what's happened. I've just won a, an award to have a, a fellowship to um, write a sequel to Capriccio. Oh, and wonderful. it's going to be called Asia. Ah, and it's going to be fiction, but it will be more um, a life story of of Asia herself, different to the way I've done it in Capriccio. But I will include not just Ted's poetry, but Asia's poetry as well. Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out for that book by Julie Chadwick. Yes. That, um, I've already pre-ordered it. And um, I've, I've written to her and told her what my intentions are. I don't know. She hasn't replied yet. I just write through, um, you know, Twitter messages. Yes. Um, but she was supportive of Capriccio and she put a little footnote and mentioned it as well in her beautiful book, uh, Reclaiming Asia Webel. Oh, that's that's marvelous. Um, yes, I should I should tell listeners that that uh, the collected writings of Asia Webel are going to be published soon. I believe in yes, November on the eleventh, eleventh yes. November. And I've got the, the date in my head. Yeah, the two editors, Peter Stein, uh, Peter Steinberg, and uh, Julia uh, Goodspeed Chadwick, uh, yes. will be guests on on the podcast. It'll be very interesting to see. Uh, to have them talk about their research and their sense of Asia now after doing so much work and sort of putting her back together. Absolutely. Well, I want to, in a way, build on that, in the way I built on, built on <coughs> Lovers of Unre Unreason, uh, with, with Julie and Peter's blessing, and only if, you know, they don't mind me uh, using some of the poetry. I just want... Because... All I could get from all the research I did, and I did go to the British Museum too, travelled over to London, and I, I, I looked at the, uh, the box, the archive box. I was allowed to go in. I had to really, really work hard to talk my way into the manuscripts room, but I was able to see the, some of the original poetry, but none uh, by Ted, a little by Sylvie, but none by Arcia. So they've done all the work, you know, 
Yeah. However, I want to go a little bit further and the novelist to enter her mind, um, which I only partly do. Of course, she's one of the three characters. I would like her to be seen as the main character in Capriccio, but I'm not sure if that comes across. Um, but I certainly do present a different view of her to the way other biographers, except for a Latin and uh, Corinne, of course. Yes. I wanted to ask you one more question that, that uh, it's often an issue with biographers when they get you know, deep into a subject and they do a lot of research and there always mm -hmm. seems to be something else to learn, something else to research. Mm -hmm. And when do you start writing? Was that a problem for you? It was. I Look, I enjoyed the research so much, I became addicted to it. And, you know, books kept coming out as well. So as soon as I thought, well, I've got enough material, there would be another book on the market. So <laughs> I, 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 I found it very hard to stop. In fact, I've never stopped. So at one point, at some point, I thought, well, look, you know, Maybe I'll never get to write this book. I'll just have to start. Starting was so difficult. I'm sure that you can identify, you know, the, the first word, the first, the first page, the first paragraph, the first sentence. It's wrung out of you. But uh, as soon as I started, it just, you know, I couldn't stop writing. But yeah. I kept researching throughout the writing. I never mm. stopped. And, and I think that's why I, I want to point out that although this is a novel, there were, there's been extensive research behind it. And, you know, and in, in this next book I'm going to write about Asia, there's been so much more written, you know, since Capriccio was published, I'll certainly be doing that as well. Sure, yeah. Is there is there any question I should have asked you that I didn't ask? Um, well, I, I've got, I've made a few notes here how I, Oh, I think I think we've covered a lot. I did, I did feel um, I wanted to ask a little. I would wanted to actually ask your advice sure. about this fair use. Um, if, for example, I write the book Asia using her name, um, and with permission from Peter and Julie, um, using some of her poetry. And maybe a, a few, uh, also Amachai, Yehuda Amachai. I did publish that beautiful poem he wrote, The Death of A.G. Oh, yeah. Yehuda Amachai was, was the poet that, uh, uh, Israeli poet, that Asiya translated, and which I talk about actually in, in the book, of her, the process of her translating. And, and the brilliant, brilliant work. And she's barely acknowledged for that either. Um, what is my situation vis-a-vis -vis the, well, even the Hughes estate with maybe a couple of lines from the Capriccio poems? Well, first thing, like that lawyer said, is don't write to them again. No. Okay. <laughs> don't write to Faber. I, don't I don't write to, uh, to uh, any of these estates is my, my feeling. You know, in U.S. Yeah. copyright law, at least, biography is now viewed really as a transformational work. In other words, you may be using some of the words from even unpublished writing, 
but if you're crafting your own work, uh, that's that's considered transformational. It's considered yours. Yes, you're yeah. taking things from other people, but I think it's it's misunderstood that you need to ask permission for all those uses. Um, in most cases, if you've really crafted the book, and it's it's true with a biography, and I don't see why it wouldn't be with a novel. Um, you're on pretty solid ground. The issue always is, is there somebody around who might actually sue you? Would they go to that much trouble uh, to take it to court and so on? It just depends on how you feel, what kind of a risk taker you are, and also on uh, the track record. As I said, you mentioned in a previous podcast, although publishers seem to be uh, afraid of these things, uh, yes. The Plath Estate, for example, uh, no one's ever been sued for copyright infringement. And my own um, two books on Plath so far have certainly quoted material and lawyers have looked at it in the past and said it's okay what you've done with the work. So there yes. is a way to do it. Well, because I'll be mainly quoting Asia's poetry and maybe using just the titles and titles, as I say, are not, am I correct in this? Titles are not copyright? They're not copyrighted at all. So you could certainly use those titles. And you also have this connection with Celia, which is good. Yeah, well, through her son. Um, she didn't want me to use, this is a question I had too. She said, I asked her, could I use the um, photo of Asia that so attracted me 20 years ago? She said, no, she does not want any photos of Asia reproduced. And yet every book that's come out yes. in the last few years has a photo of the, of well, the, re the real person. It, it, it depends. It all depends on who took the photograph. And in some cases, we don't know who took the photograph. No. I have a picture of Asia in my book, and it wasn't yes. determined who took the photograph. And in a case no. like that, if you've applied to the archive or whoever is in possession of the photograph, they don't necessarily own the copyright. Uh, if you've made a good faith effort, again, it's up to you uh, whether to use that photograph or not. It's not really um, her sister's, uh, Asia's sister's call, unless it's, you know, a photograph that's been taken by her or a member of the family uh, or someone who claims mm. copyright. Someone can own a photograph, for example, but they, they don't necessarily own the copyright at all. Well, for example, the the uh, article I mentioned, Haunted by the Ghosts of Love, uh, publishes in The Guardian that black and white photo of Asia. You know, um, it's been published yes. in the media. Yeah. I don't see why I couldn't use that photo. Yeah. It's the one of her, you know, with a string of pearls. It's black and white. Yes. Very beautiful. Yes. Well, you, you probably can. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I'm not much of a risk taker. I'm too scared. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I understand um, that M many people just simply don't want to deal with the whole complicated mm, matter. Mm, mm. So but they look, ask you've for given permission. me you've given me some hope that <laughs> um, perhaps this and, and well, remember it will be biofiction, not yeah, straight you, biography. You have to keep in mind that you're speaking with a buccaneering biographer. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I so admire you for being such a risk taker and, and for the prolific work that you've done. I mean, it's just amazing. 
and I'm very proud actually to be on this podcast with you. And, well, thank uh, you. It's it's want to a, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, when that next novel comes out, we'll do this again. Oh, I'd love to, Carl. Um, That's and, great. Uh, Thank you very much for having me today. Oh, my, my pleasure. And I'll be posting this podcast soon and I'll send you a link. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're Goodbye, welcome. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.